0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Since colonial times, African Americans have fought in America's wars. In every war, in fact. The first person to die in the Revolutionary War, Crispus Attucks, was black. Black soldiers have put their lives on the line for a country that for centuries enslaved, segregated, and discriminated against them. Until the Korean War, Blacks served in segregated units under racist leadership and were often relegated to labor and service units. Despite the continuous discriminatory treatment that denied Blacks full participation in America's military efforts, these brave men and women lived lives that deserve to be remembered. My name's Moxie, and this is your brain on facts. Possibly the best-known all-black military unit comes with a bit of a mystery in its history. They were called Buffalo Soldiers, though there are competing reasons as to why. In 1866, an active Congress created six all-black peacetime regiments, later consolidated into four, the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry. Initially, the Buffalo Soldier Regiments were commanded by Whites, with Blacks being forbidden from holding the ranks of officers. These troops often faced extreme racial prejudice from the Army establishment. Many officers, including George Armstrong Custer, a boo and a hiss there, refused to command Black regiments, even though it cost them promotions. Further, Black troops could only serve west of the Mississippi River because many whites didn't want to see armed black men near their communities. It even sometimes happened that the Buffalo Soldiers suffered deadly violence at the hands of civilians. The Buffalo Soldiers' main duty was to support the nation's westward expansion by protecting settlers, building roads and other infrastructure, and guarding the U.S. mail. They served at a variety of posts in the southwest and Great Plains, taking part in most of the military campaigns during the decades-long Indian Wars, during which they compiled a distinguished record, with 18 Buffalo Soldiers awarded the Medal of Honor. We don't have time today to dwell on the irony of African American soldiers fighting Native people on behalf of a government that accepted neither group as equals. The exceptional performance of these soldiers helped to overcome resistance to the idea of Black officers, paving the way for the first African-American graduate from West Point, Henry O. Flipper, who we'll hear more about later. Buffalo Soldiers played significant roles in many other military actions. They took part in defusing the little-known 1892 Johnson County War in Wyoming, which pitted small farmers against wealthy ranchers and a band of hired gunmen. They also fought in the Spanish-American and Philippine-American Wars, and played a key role in maintaining border security during the high-intensity military conflict along the U.S.-Mexico border during the Mexican Revolution. In 1918, the 10th Cavalry fought at the Battle of Ambos Nogales, where they assisted in forcing the surrender of the Mexican Federal and Militia forces. Discrimination played a role in diminishing the Buffalo Soldiers' involvement in upcoming major conflicts. During World War I, the racist policies of President Woodrow Wilson, among whose claims to infamy include segregating federal offices, led to black regiments being excluded from the American Expeditionary Force and placed under French command for the duration of the war. The first time ever that American troops were placed under the command of a foreign power. Then, prior to World War II, the 9th and 10th cavalry regiments were essentially disbanded, and most of their troops moved to service roles. However, the 92nd Infantry Division, known as the Buffalo Division, did see combat during the invasion of Italy, while another division that included the original Buffalo Soldiers of the 25th Infantry Regiment fought in the Pacific Theater. The last segregated U.S. Army regiments were disbanded in 1951 during the Korean War, and their soldiers integrated into other units. There was an episode of M.A.S.H. about that, I don't know if you saw it, where a CO was sending his black soldiers on the most dangerous details in hopes of getting rid of them. Bonus super tangent fact, M.A.S.H. ran nearly four times longer than the main fighting in the Korean conflict. I say main fighting because the conflict was paused with the armistice, but not officially ended until recently. Even with the show still in reruns, the Korean War is considered the Forgotten War, and since the least remembered in American history. Back on track, though, why were these troops called Buffalo Soldiers? There are differing theories regarding the origin of the nickname. One is that the Plains Indians who fought the soldiers thought that their dark, curly hair resembled the fur of the buffalo. Another is that their bravery and ferocity in battle reminded the Indians of the way buffaloes fought. Whatever the reason, the soldiers considered the name high praise, as buffalo were deeply respected by the native peoples of the Great Plains. Eventually, the image of a buffalo became part of the 10th Cavalry's Regimental Crest. Five million Americans served their country in uniform during World War I, including two million deployed overseas. More than 350,000 African Americans served during World War I. Overcoming racial hostilities, these men demonstrated through their service a love of country and the importance of equality. The paradox of African Americans fighting on the front lines in France was clear. They defended America's freedom abroad while being denied rights at home. Although the Civil War ended 50 years before World War I began, racial discrimination was common through most of America. Jim Crow laws enforced a culture of segregation. African Americans faced prejudice from their white counterparts in the service and in civilian communities near stateside military bases. Eugene Jacques Boulard may have been the 6,950th French military pilot to earn his wings during World War I, but he's remembered as history's very first African American aviator. The 21-year-old volunteer graduated from flight training in May of 1917, after spending more than 12 harrowing months fighting in the French army on the Western Front. One of nearly 300 U.S. citizens to serve in France's burgeoning air corps prior to America's entry to the war, Boulard was eventually assigned to the famous Lafayette Flying Corps. Although never earning the distinction of ace, Boulard still won many of his adopted country's highest military decorations, including the Légion d'honneur, the Medal Militaire and Le Croix de Guerre. Despite his acclaim in France, Boulard received virtually no recognition in America. Worse, after returning to the States as a wounded combat veteran and aviation trailblazer, he died broke in obscurity. In his teens, young Eugene, who was part Creek Indian, left behind a life of racial segregation and hopped a transatlantic steamer bound for Europe. He eventually landed in Paris, where he made a living as a prizefighter. Within weeks of Germany's 1914 invasion of France, Boulard enlisted. Like other non-native volunteers, he was assigned to a French Foreign Legion Regiment, where he served with distinction as a machine gunner. During 1915, his 23,000-man unit was decimated, suffering more than 50% casualties. And Boulard was transferred to the celebrated 170th Infantry Regiment and sent to the Battle of Verdun. Wounded in the opening weeks of the epic 10-month clash, Boulard was pulled from the line to recuperate. In October 1916, Boulard signed on with the French Air Service and began flight training. By the following year, he was piloting Spads and Nuitports with the 93rd Escadrille against German warplanes over the Verdun sector. A capable aviator, Boulard quickly earned the nickname the Black Swallow of Death, an homage to his former regiment, as the 170th were known as Hirondelles de la morte, the swallows of death. Heralded as the only black pilot of the war, and a decorated one at that, he enjoyed notoriety in the French press. Following America's entry into the war, Boulard applied for a transfer to the nascent U.S. Army Flying Corps that was assembling in France. Spoiler alert, the American military rejected him because of his race. Boulard continued to fly with the French Air Service, but was eventually returned to the infantry after striking a superior officer while on leave. He served out the rest of the war in the rear echelon with his old unit, the 170th. Following the armistice, Boulard worked as a jazz drummer and owned his own bar, named L'Escadrille, in reference to his wartime flying. Jazz legends and celebrities frequented the club. In the 1920s, Boulard married into a wealthy French family and had two children. The marriage ended in 1935. In 39, Boulard offered his services to France again, this time recording the comings and goings of the nightclub's German patrons. When Hitler's panzers rolled into France in May of 1940, the middle-aged Boulard joined the French army in time to see action, but was grievously wounded in defense of Orléans. As the country fell to the Nazis, Boulard was evacuated to Spain and eventually repatriated to the United States. Still recovering from his injuries, Boulard scratched out a meager living as a perfume salesman and night watchman. Few in America knew, or cared about, his legendary exploits. When the war was over, the French government offered him compensation for his lost business and his injuries, but he remained in New York with his children. In 1949, Boulard was one of more than a dozen people attacked by a mob in Peekskill, New York, while waiting to get into a concert. The 54 year old war hero being beaten by two policemen was even captured on film. A few years later, Boulard briefly returned to France for the 40th anniversary of the First World War, where he received a hero's welcome, was named to the Legion of Honor, and made a guest of the French military commemoration. Back in New York, Boulard worked as an elevator operator. He died of stomach cancer in 1961 at the age of 66. Eventually, his service was more properly acknowledged. The Air Force granted Boulard an honorary commission of second lieutenant. While Eugene Boulard is remembered for being the first African-American fighter pilot in history, he isn't the first black combat aviator. That honor goes to Ahmet Ali Khalechton of the Ottoman Air Service. Born in 1883 in Izmir, Turkey to African parents, Ahmet joined the Turkish Navy in 1904. Four years later, he went to the Naval Academy and was made an officer. In 1914, he enrolled in flight school and became a pilot in the Ottoman Air Corps in 1916. Unfortunately, most details of his record as a combat flyer are unclear. The first black flyer for the British Empire was likely the Jamaican-born William Robinson Clark dubbed the Pilot of the Caribbean by the RAF. That might be the most solid pun I've heard this week. According to the Royal Aero Club Trust of the UK, the 22-year-old aircraft mechanic-turned-aviator earned his wings sometime in April of 1917, predating Boulard's May 5th pilot registration by at least five days. According to Jamaican sources, Clark was one of a handful of black pilots from the West Indies to serve in the British Air Force during the war. When the African-American National Guard soldiers of New York's 15th Infantry Regiment arrived in France in December 1917, they expected to conduct combat training and enter the trenches of the Western Front right away. They couldn't have been more wrong. They were ordered to unload supply ships for their first few months in France, Joining the mass of supply troops known as stevedores, working long hours in the port. More than half of those deployed in Europe were assigned to labor and stevedore battalions, given tasks that many army leaders saw as most appropriate, like building roads, bridges, and trenches in support of the frontline troops. In the port of Saint Nazaire, the New York National Guard soldiers learned that they would work to prepare the docks and rail lines to be a major port of entry for the hundreds of thousands of soldiers yet to arrive. According to the 2003 book Harlem's Hellfighters, First, Pershing would have a source of cheap labor. Second, he wouldn't have to worry about what to do with the black soldiers, particularly when he might have to mix them with white troops. They had no place to put the regiment, recalled Infantry Captain Hamilton Fish in the book. They weren't going to put us in a white division, not in 1917 anyway. So our troops were sent in to supply and service as laborers to lay railroad tracks. This naturally upset our men tremendously. The regiment's best advocate was their commander, Colonel William Hayward. Hayward argued his case in a letter to General Pershing, outlining the regiment's mobilization and training, and followed up immediately with a personal visit to Pershing's headquarters he would bring with him the regiment's most formidable weapon in swaying public opinion, the regimental band, lauded as one of the finest in the entire expeditionary force. While the regiment literally laid the tracks for the arrival of the two million troops deploying in France, the regimental band toured the region, performing for French and American audiences at rest centers and hospitals. The 369th band was unlike any other performance audiences had seen or heard before. The regimental band is credited with introducing jazz to France during the war. After some three months of labor constructing nearby railways to move supplies, the soldiers learned that they had orders to join the French 16th Division for three weeks of combat training. They also learned they had a new regimental number as the renamed 369th Infantry Regiment. Not that it mattered much to them. They still carried their nickname from New York, the Black Rattlers. While the 369th Infantry would become part of the U.S. Army's 92nd Infantry Division, it would be assigned to fight with French forces. This solved the dilemma for Pershing and the American Expeditionary Forces of what to do with the African American troops. The unit was effectively given to the French Army. The black troops would see combat, but alongside French soldiers, who were already accustomed to a variety of races and ethnicities serving in the ranks of their colonial troops which is, I guess, a tiny sliver of a silver lining to imperialism. The French army instructors welcomed their African-American trainees as comrades-in-arms, and were impressed by their performance. After learning valuable lessons in trench warfare from their French partners, the soldiers of the 369th finally had their chance to prove their mettle as combat troops when they entered the front lines, holding their line against the last German spring offensive near Chateau Thierry, Their value was not lost on the French, and the regiment continued to fight alongside French forces, participating in the Eisenmarny counteroffensive in the summer of 1918 alongside the French 162nd Infantry Division. The regiment would go on to prove itself in combat operations throughout the rest of the war, receiving France's highest honor, Le Croix de Guerre, for its unit's actions, alongside some 171 individual decorations for heroism. The Hellfighters from Harlem had come into their own, in spite of their difficult start. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Rather than a top ten list for today's episode, let's do a list of number ones. On October 25th, 1940, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. became the first African-American to serve as a general officer in the U.S. Army. He entered the military service in July of 1898 during the war with Spain as a temporary first lieutenant of the 8th U.S. Volunteer Infantry. He then served as a corporal and squadron sergeant major, and in 1901 was commissioned as a second lieutenant of cavalry in the regular army. Davis's military decorations included the Bronze Star and the Distinguished Service Medal, for exceptional meritorious service to the government in the duty of great responsibility from June 1941 to November 1944 as an inspector of troop units in the field and a special war department consultant on matters pertaining to negro troops Immediately following the Civil War William Cathy enlisted in the US Regular Army in St. Louis Missouri William was described by the recruiting officer as five foot nine inches tall, with black eyes, black hair, and a black complexion. This cursory examination by an Army physician missed the fact that William Cathy was actually Cathy Williams, an African-American woman. Cathy served from November 1866 until her discharge with a surgeon's certificate of disability on October 1868. Despite numerous and often lengthy hospital stays during her service, Her gender was not revealed until June of 1891 when she applied for a disability pension and disclosed her true identity. She did not receive the pension, not because she was a woman or because she was Black, but because her disabilities were not considered service-related. Kathy Williams has been noted in military history journals as the only documented female Buffalo soldier and the only documented African American woman who served in the U.S. Army prior to the 1948 law which officially allowed women to join. In 1877, Henry O. Flipper became the first African American to graduate from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. His assignment in July of 1877 to the 10th U.S. Cavalry, one of two black cavalry regiments organized after the Civil War, was the realization of a personal dream. Unfortunately, his dream was short-lived as he was wrongfully court-martialed and dishonorably discharged. Assigned to the 10th Cavalry over Buffalo Soldiers, Lt. Flipper served at Forts Elliott, Concho, Quitman, Sill, and Davis, and he fought twice at Eagle Spring, Texas, during the Victorio campaign against the Apaches in 1880. In 1881, while stationed at Fort Davis, Texas, he was framed by white officers and charged with embezzlement. At his court-martial, he was found not guilty of embezzlement, but guilty of conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. He was dishonorably discharged, and for the rest of his life, fought to restore his good name. Following his death in 1940, Flipper's descendants continued advocating to have his dishonorable discharge overturned, and in 1976, with the recognition of his mistreatment, he was finally granted an honorable discharge and a full pardon. West Point now gives an award in his honor to the graduating senior who's displayed the highest qualities of leadership, self-discipline, and perseverance in the face of unusual difficulties while a cadet. World War II brought out the best in America's young people. Young African-American women like Margaret E. Bailey found it as an opportunity to fight for their citizenship. This isn't a situation like Starship Troopers where service guarantees citizenship, but military service and the struggle for civil rights are intrinsically intertwined. By May 1943, 183 African-American nurses held commissions in the Army Nurse Corps. During World War II, African-American nurses served in all theaters of the war, including Africa, Burma, Australia, and England. At the conclusion of World War II, about 600 African-American nurses had served. One of these nurses, Margaret E. Bailey, accepted a commission in June of 1944. In July of 1964, Bailey became the first African-American promoted to lieutenant colonel in the Army Nurse Corps, and in 1970, she was promoted to full colonel. Throughout her 27-year career in the Army, Colonel Margaret Bailey advocated for the integration of all military housing, work environments, and recreational facilities. Following her retirement, Bailey became a consultant to the Surgeon General to promote increased participation by members of minority groups in the Army Nurse Corps. And a side note, if you heard the tinkling of a tiny bell in the background of that section or any part of today's podcast… That is the collar of a foster cat named Matryoshka, which means Russian nesting doll, which, side note, aren't actually Russian. I'll tell you about that someday. After the seventh time I restarted that paragraph, I just decided to leave it in. In 1947, Roscoe Robinson Jr. attended St. Louis University for only a year before he transferred to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He graduated with a degree in military engineering in 1951. During the next 34 years, he would become a distinguished combat commander and the first African-American to become a four-star general. He served in the Korean War in 1952 as a platoon leader and rifle company commander, and received the Bronze Star. After returning to the United States a year later, he became an instructor in the Airborne Department of the U.S. Army Infantry School. In 1967, he served as battalion commander in Vietnam, and there received the Legion of Merit, the Distinguished Flying Cross, 11 Air Medals, and 2 Silver Stars. He was promoted to Brigadier General, and in 1975 became Commanding General of the U.S. Army Garrison in Okinawa. He also commanded the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. His final assignment was as U.S. military representative to the NATO Military Committee. He was then awarded with two Distinguished Service Medals and one Defense Distinguished Service Medal. After his retirement, he was asked to oversee a panel tasked to examine the Korean War performance of some African American Army units that had previously been criticized. When Hazel Johnson, an operating room nurse who graduated from the Harlem Hospital School of Nursing, joined the Army in 1955, She thought it would be an opportunity that would allow her to explore the world and hone her nursing skills. She had no idea she would become the first African-American female general officer. She entered the army shortly after President Harry Truman banned segregation and discrimination in the armed services. Through her diligent service, Johnson was rewarded with a number of promotions and posts of responsibility. She was also afforded educational opportunities and would earn a bachelor's degree in nursing at Villanova University, a master's degree in nursing education from Columbia University, and a Ph.D. in education administration from Catholic University. As chief of the Army's Nurse Corps, General Johnson commanded 7,000 male and female nurses, including those in the Army National Guard and Army Reserve. She also set policy and oversaw operations in eight Army medical centers, 56 community hospitals, and 143 freestanding clinics in the United States, Japan, Korea, Germany, Italy, and Panama. The list of awards and recognitions throughout her military career includes the 1972 U.S. Army Nurse of the Year, honorary doctorates from Villanova University, Morgan State University, the University of Maryland, the Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, the Meritorious Service Medal, and the Army Commendation Medal with Oak Leaf Cluster. Her responsibilities left little time to pursue other avenues in life, including marriage. However, two years before retiring from the Army, Johnson married David Brown, and the 16th Chief of the Army Nurse Corps became Brigadier General Hazel W. Johnson Brown. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. There are, of course, more stories of African Americans who served their country than I could ever hope to recount. Like Lemuel Haynes, who served as a Minuteman during the American Revolution after gaining his freedom from indentured servitude. Or Major Martin Robinson Delaney, the first African American field officer in the U.S. Army. He was accepted to Harvard Medical School, but was kicked out after three weeks when white students petitioned for his removal. Or Private First Class Milton Olive III, who was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for saving the lives of four other soldiers during the Vietnam War when he threw himself on a grenade. May their stories never be forgotten. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.